Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Welcome back, everyone, to How to Eat an Elephant. And we're biting. We're chewing. Our jaws are getting sore at this point. Maybe your jaws are also sore. But I I believe, ladies, I believe that we have a payout ahead of us. And we've invested so much that I'm going to stick around for it. How do you feel? Well, it's Dragon. I do think (laughs) (laughs) I'm getting a little tired of his, his thesis. And we're circling around yet again, ladies and gentlemen, for five more chapters about causes and how you should not try to auto-cause things because you can't again. <laughs> Emily, <laughs> Emily, is this or is this not? Because you're you're one of the more sane members of our posse. I like yeah. to exaggerate. Megan occasionally even likes to oh, exaggerate. Oh, I do. But I you're love very, to exaggerate. You're very, you know, solid. Is this or is this not exactly the same darn thing as we read in the last five chapters? And how are we going to make it different? Well, <laughs> how are we, the three how of us, going to cause it to be gonna different? going to present another episode well, you can't cause on anything. this stuff. Give up, Ian. Tolstoy says give up. <laughs> I can acknowledge your point of view, but also I am trying, I'm putting on my big girl pants here and I am going to give Tolstoy his due. I do see some things that are different about this that I think are important I see some shift in tone give from our past previous chapters. I think in this section there is some new perspective that he is giving us. But mostly, you guys, before we launch in, I do think we need to stop and reflect and celebrate the fact that in this reading, we passed page 1,000. Woohoo! Yeah, we did. I just That's worthy of like a party. Yeah, I wish a we should throw a party. That yeah. is no mean feat. We need some champ at this party. I might need some champ to get through the rest of this. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm pl- I present a bleak outlook mostly because it plays, and I think it's funny. But it is it, the the thematic um, thrust of the five chapters that we've bitten off to chew today is remarkably similar, nay identical to the thematic thrust of the last five chapters. Right. But it is applied on both sides of the ball, which is pretty interesting. We get to see it reflected in what happens in the actual battle, which we've been preparing for for five chapters. And then we get to see it reflected in both Kutuzov's mind and in the account of how Napoleon's time in Moscow actually works out. And I found those those details pretty historically interesting. Yeah, it's historically interesting. And also he's implicating us finally in a way that I think makes this actually really relevant. Interesting. What do you mean? On exactly page 1000. He says he's um, talking about uh, this battle of Tarotino and uh, the way that historians recount it. Um, And he says when it was done, there were officers who said, that's how it always is done with us, all the wrong way around, Mm -hmm. the Russian officers in general said after the battle. Just as people speak now, letting it be felt that some fool somewhere does things that way, the wrong way around, but we would not do things that way. But people who talk like that either do not know what they're talking about or are deliberately deceiving themselves. 
And that just felt like a really don't, human don't the, moment. Finish that paragraph. No battle, Tarotino, Borodino, Austerlitz comes off the way its organizers supposed. That is an essential condition. So what makes a battle a battle is that it doesn't go the way it's supposed to go. Well, but I'm not even that's I don't <laughs> I don't want to even qualify it that way. Like even before that sentence, I think that that it's very it's a very human sentiment that he has identified here. No matter what we're talking about, battle or anything else in life, we're given to say well, that was a foolish thing that just happened and we lay blame. I mean, just think about how relevant this is like in our atmosphere now. Like we lay the blame on someone else and say, well, they're dumb. I wouldn't have done it that way. I, if I were in charge, I would do it the right way. And Tolstoy is skewering us for that in this moment. And I think that it's very understandable. That is point well taken and well articulated. I think you're right about that. I think he's totally implicating us. I don't know if the thing he's saying, I think it's true of of humanity that we do it this way. And I think I am guilty of it. And so I'm the just target of Tolstoy's ruminations here. But the thing he's saying about battles is manifestly untrue, or at least it's not true in every case. I mean, there are battles that went exactly the way they were supposed to. There are famous gambits by famous generals that worked. And and so it strikes me that he may be, and this is just an observation, he may be confusing confusing things by taking the the essentially human, by which he means the individual, right? Going all the way down, zooming all the way in with the microscope on the individual person's experience in situations like this and how powerless the individual person is to change anything in the course of such a vast movement of people and troops and armies. And confusing that with the broad strokes of how a group of men, such as the group of men that might be leading a state, can actually provide some architecture for not just movements of troops, but also for the way a nation, nation's fortunes fall out. And I don't, it seems like there is some actual historical evidence that contradicts his point a little bit. And it makes me wonder if he is taking the particulars and blowing them out of proportion. But maybe that's not a conversation we have the well, to have. Well, he's very clear that if you think that... You're an it, idiot. No, that <laughs> it, you're wrong. That we... I mean, he's been clear this whole time that if we look back in history and see a, a plan that has worked, then we are selectively choosing the plan, that there were many mm -hmm. plans, and we've um, conveniently chosen the one that worked to read our history backwards, Yeah, uh, and that it's not as clear-cut as we think. So then how does he... And I realize I'm rehashing the point from the last episode, but here we are with the same text over again. So how does he get away then with saying in the very next chapter of Napoleon, he not only did none of the smart things he could do with his advantageous position, he not only did none of those, but on the contrary, used his power in order to choose out of all the paths of action presented to him, the one which was the most stupid and destructive. So on the one hand, he's saying to us, any, any discrete narrative that explains history to you is one that you've chosen out of convenience that doesn't make any sense and isn't true to the real situation. And then turns around and says... I'm the only person who's allowed to do that. That's actually a little out of context, though. He's saying that he chose the most stupid route because... So you can say negative things about the course of history, but not positive ones. No, that's not why he says that in the middle of a syllogism in which he's trying to explain that Napoleon's... It, like, all the things were there, and Napoleon was doing his best to choose the proper action, and mm -hmm. things got out of his control, and he managed to choose the stupidest one, but he later on says 
Napoleon is no more of an idiot than he is a genius. This is just what fell out. I also noticed that he is comparing, maybe not outright, but because of the placement of chapters, um, proximity here between Kutuzov and Napoleon, the different effects that the same action has. Kutuzov hesitates. All that he's doing is trying not to act. He's trying not Mm -hmm. to go to battle. And Napoleon is hesitating. In Moscow. And for Kutuzov, that's the reason that they win. And for Napoleon, that's the reason that he suffers a horrible defeat in spite of the fact that he has all of the benefits at his disposal. And I think that that is Tolstoy doubling down on the same point. Hmm. It doesn't really matter what you choose in the moment. There's something outside of you orchestrating you as a cog in the machine. I don't even disagree with him about that. I mean, I, I'm a Christian reader. I believe in the sovereignty of God and things like that. I mean, I... I I don't know that the point he's making is one that that I disagree with, but it seems to me that he's exposing a giant authorial blind spot in the way that he makes it. Well, I could see what you mean by that, mostly because what I noticed about this this particular section of chapters is the biting sarcasm that grows as he examines Napoleon's attempts, like you said, Emily, his attempts to do the right thing to make this work in Moscow and fortify his troops and keep the looting from happening and set up some kind of religious observance and all the things that he tries to do that would be right to establish himself as a ruler here go south and work exactly the opposite of the way that he intends. And while that is trotting out Tolstoy's point, it was heavy, heavy sarcasm, I thought, in tone. Do you agree with that, Emily? Is it a sarcastic tone from your perspective? Yeah, I think so. I think that he has always dealt harshly with his great men. Mm-hmm. The word Ian used before we got on today was snide. Yeah. And or I smug, think, too. Yeah. Yeah, he's both of those things, I think. There's, I mean, also, nobody's ever, I mean, well, some may have, but few people have ever used language um, quite so impressively as this guy. I mean, <laughs> when he wants to be snide, he is so cutting and it works. It absolutely works. It would be difficult and even impossible to think up any outcome of the battle more expedient than the one it had. With the least strain, with the greatest confusion, (laughs) and with the most insignificant losses, the greatest results of the whole campaign were achieved. The transition was made from retreat to offense. The weakness of the French was exposed, and the push was given, which Napoleon's army was only waiting for to begin its flight. It's like he's thumbing his nose at his own troops. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Napoleon or or Tolstoy? Tolstoy. What do you mean his own troops? I mean, the way that he has interpreted the history here is that everyone is a babe in the woods walking around screaming for its mommy, including the victorious Russians. Right. And don't you think that that's kind of his point, that that's the condition of man? Absolutely. That that we're all walking around blindly. And like, I just, I even see in this section, we've had moments of this before, but I see more compassion actually towards Napoleon than in previous times in this section. And I know that he, he caricatures, caricatures him Mm -hmm. um, by the end, but uh, he, he says multiple times that Napoleon isn't to blame in this. Well, not only that, but that he couldn't be because that's not how the world works. Right. And that it's not a matter of the Russians being better than the French or um, Napoleon uh, losing his genius. Yeah. Instead, what we have here is um, a providential moment. And he says other countries had to, um, they had their reasons for affirming the genius of Napoleon. 
And he says, we were given, um, not achieved, not earned, but Russia was given the opportunity to not be put in that position. That I, your point is absolutely well taken, but that is not what that sentence says. He says, we thank God have no reason to recognize his genius in order to cover up our shame. We paid for the right to look at the matter simply and directly, and we shall not give up that right. So Ian, what do you think that means? I think what he's doing is setting Russia's fortunes um, in contrast with all of the other countries that Napoleon has has campaigned in and, and won in, and is basically saying one of the motivations for this great man theory of history is to cover up the shame of a of a nation that's been defeated by a general by saying, well, well, I mean, what do you want from us? The guys how could a genius. we stand against him? Yeah, right. How could we stand against the impossible genius, the weight of the power and the intellect of Napoleon? <laughs> right. He says, we don't have to do that. We beat him. And so I and Russia am empowered stand in judgment. to stand in judgment, to actually be the person who knows about this. And so let me instruct all of you who are, who are protesting too much that Napoleon is a genius. Let me instruct you about the ways that maybe he is, but that doesn't matter at all. Well, I do think that there's a double project going on. The first is that Tolstoy is leveling all historians down to the same the same blind um, mm-hmm. position that nobody is greater than That's anyone else. That. But then on the other hand, there he's a Russian and he is delineating some of the ways that Russia is different mm-hmm. than other countries. And I see that most in our last chapter um, when we actually get a description of Napoleon in Moscow coming up against the Russian spirit. And he's trying to enact all of these laws that worked in other countries, but some crazy things go wrong. One of the ones I thought was pretty significant was the fact that uh, in other countries, he's been able to adopt the religion. And uh, like in Egypt, he he goes to a mosque and this um, mollifies the people, but that doesn't happen in Russia. He can't play act at being orthodox there's something too entrenched about the religion that he can't he can't overcome that. And when he sends out messengers to alleviate the peasants, they kill them, they kill them. instead yeah. of taking instead of taking the benefit. And so there are just some ways in which Russia is unpredictable. And I kind of wonder if that's not a product of the fact that they're not European in the same way as the other countries that that Napoleon has there's something encountered. Something alien and foreign about them. Yeah. You might be right about that. There, uh, some of the best sarcastic jabs are in this section he, because he's it's very clinical. He's going along describing, look, here's all the things Napoleon did. It worked back here and he tried this in Moscow. It worked back here and he tried this in Moscow. And then he drops in sentences like this. In the legal respect, after the execution of the supposed incendiaries, the other half of Moscow burned down. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Which is just great. So concise. So pointed. I just love it. I think that, that part is really fun to read. There's a characterization of Napoleon here at the very end that, well, I don't know. Maybe I'm a chap of one idea, but it it um made me wince on behalf of Napoleon. Napoleon, whom we imagine as guiding this whole movement, as a savage imagines that the figure carved on the prow of a ship is the force that guides it. Napoleon during all this time of his activity, was like a child who, holding the straps tied inside a carriage, fancies that he is driving it. Do you think that's a that's a decent summary of his perspective on Napoleon the man? Yeah, I mean, that's the one thing that he Tolstoy can't let go about Napoleon, is that he continues to, refu- he, he refuses to be humbled in the face of opposition. Unlike Kutuzov, whose, whose activities are at the very least driven by humility. 
whether they're effective or not is not really the point. They're they're driven by this sense of of his own smallness. Yeah, and Napoleon refuses to acknowledge that he is small or that any of his plans haven't gone exactly the way that he wants them to, as we see when he is leaving Moscow with all of his troops and they have brought all of their spoils of war with them, which are really going to weigh them down if they're actually trying to retreat. And he sees them all and he's horrified. Um, but for all his experience of war, he doesn't order the superfluous wagons to be burned. Instead, he says, oh, that's a really good idea. We need those things, even though he knows that they don't need those things. He, he rewrites the narrative himself to be a success. So maybe that's what Tolstoy is really skewering. Well, yeah, it's, it puts you in an awkward position. If you're convinced that your own greatness has made your success, then when things start failing, uh, you either think that, have to think that you are the cause of all of the failure um, or if you... What like or you just refuse to look at it, mm -hmm. which I think is the course that Napoleon is taking. I had a question, and maybe you guys can help me with this. I tried to look in the in the back, and it didn't really help that much. But um, in this passage, Tolstoy quotes from another historian. I think he is. His name is Thiers or Thiers. Do you guys know who that is? He is responsible for the tr the long translated passages of of proclamations that Napoleon gives to the, the people in Moscow here in this section. And Tolstoy makes an effort to communicate to us that it's really badly translated. So it's maybe Thiers is a, is a French guy who's trying to translate these proclamations into Russian and it's badly done. But I felt like there was something eluding me about that. He said it so many times that this was poorly translated Russian that I've, I wondered, what are we supposed to take away from that? I believe what's happening is that the proclamations themselves from Napoleon to the Russians are poorly written. But you're also right. Thiers is like, I think, I believe he's the French historian who, who, bi who wrote Napoleon's biography. Yeah. Okay. I see. So Tolstoy's using his source text for here's the truth of what happened from the French perspective. Well, yeah. And I think he's also... I mean, maybe it's the this is the best painting we have of Napoleon's genius in this area. Look at all the good things he tried to do that didn't work. Here's my theory of history. I think that's probably true. But I also think that um, in terms of because I look, it's it's not that it bothers me. It's just stark when Tolstoy zooms out and says, let's talk about theories of history when we've just been in the narrative with our characters. And I, I want to go back in there, dude, quit zooming me out anyway. But I feel like this is maybe a concession to the character driven perspective of this because Napoleon, the, the man, the character in the novel is unable to speak the language of Russia. And I'm not talking about Russian. He, he doesn't understand how these proclamations are going to affect the Russian populace. He thinks that by assuring the peasants, I will set up soldiers around the market to make sure that it's safe for you to come and, and sell your wares. I mean, it's the stupidest thing he possibly could have said. Oh, dude, your soldiers are the people we're afraid of. How is posting them around us going to make us feel any better? You know what? Get that messenger over here. <laughs> right? Like there's just that he he's completely out of his element. I you make you put me in mind of a wonderment which is, you know how in Dante there's Dante the author and then Dante the character, but even Dante the character there's Dante before the journey and Dante after the journey. Yeah, so many um, personas going on. Yeah, and I kind of wonder if um, Tolstoy has the same kind of thing going on with Napoleon. We have Napoleon the character who 
when he is in that mode, um, when Tolstoy is writing in that mode, we actually can see him as a man mm-hmm. and we have compassion on him for his weaknesses, which we share. And then there's Napoleon, the punching bag, which is an idea, Napoleon, an idea and Napoleon, the man. Um, and when Tolstoy is in philosophizing mode, he's using Napoleon, the punching bag. But when and that's, he goes into narration, it's Napoleon, the man. It rings hollow for me. It rings hollow for me when he goes to Napoleon, the punching bag. Well, and I think that all of his philosophy segments ring more hollow for us. On the one hand, we're English majors and we're here for the character development. That's why we're loving this book. But also he gets a little, um, he lacks subtlety in the philosophical chapters. So I identify with with losing interest when he treats Napoleon like a punching bag. But it is it is philosophy proper. Uh, I, <laughs> I have to read The Republic for school right now. And I... It's exactly what you said, Megan. I'm an English major. I prefer the concrete. I prefer, yep. I prefer subtlety and nuance. To be on, I prefer the earth, the stuff of the earth. Um, but philosophy is more idealized, like that, and it can feel inhuman. The Republic feels very inhuman to me, and that is shocking because I come from the perspective of, of um, the concrete, but. But it is philosophy, and there is a tradition for it, and he is engaging in that tradition. It's just maybe a little hard to switch modes sometimes. Yeah, that's fair enough. I I do want. I wish I could have a conversation with him. I I think it would be fun because what I want to ask Tolstoy is, hey man, one of the things it seems like you're trying to say is that the individual cannot make a dent in the course of things. But you're also trying to tell me that because individuals are going to be individuals, right? Because the multiplicity of causes includes human emotions that are ungovernable. And so you're trying to tell me on the one hand that stop trying to interpret history because man can't actually have an impact on the course of of the events around him because man's emotions are always going to have an impact on the thing, on the course of events around him. I mean, it seems fundamentally contradictory. Well, I do actually, I don't, I actually wonder if we're starting to reach a tipping point here because he says, he says on page 1000 again, a significant page, <laughs> um, a countless number of free forces parentheses for nowhere is man more free than in a battle where it is a question of life and death mm-hmm. and parentheses, yeah. a countless number of free forces influence the direction of the battle. And that direction can never be known beforehand and never coincides with the direction of some one force. So he does actually articulate the freedom of man here and says, and by the way, Freedom exists. I know that I've been harping on the the boundedness of man's will, but here I'm about to tell you that men are free and it's nowhere more than when they are in the most dire situations of life and death. And so um, I wonder as the book starts to reach its conclusion, if we're going to see that playing out more and more like, okay, I've given you the large scope of how man is not free. But now we're going to look at the granular details and you're going to find that um, in his uh, confined and small little plot of earth, man is actually free. And here's what that means. Like, I wonder if we're starting to have like the next stage of the conversation. I'm here for it. That's hopeful. I'd love for him to change his tune a little bit. (laughs) If only for interest. (laughs) (laughs) Here at page (laughs) 1000. Well, I, I glanced ahead at the next chapter, 
and we get more Pierre. Woohoo! So I guess we're stepping into some more character-driven personal aspects of the story. But um, did did you guys did you guys get it all out? Did you notice anything else about these chapters that you that you feel we can't let it pass before we mention? I mean, we didn't really articulate the details of the battle itself. Well, I mean, kind of below the surface, what's happened here, plot-wise, is that Napoleon has left Moscow. Mm-hmm. Moscow is now abandoned. Well, he's yeah. I mean, to uh, and here I am doing the kind of analysis that Tolstoy doesn't want me to do, but he's been drawn out of Moscow by an attack of the enemy on the general that he sent to find Kutuzov. Instead, Kutuzov has found him, and the French are getting their butts kicked out in the forest, and Napoleon has no choice. Wasn't there something about a, a like a supply a supply train that the Russians destroyed so Napoleon doesn't have what he needs in Moscow anymore? And mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, we're not allowed to ascribe causes to anything, so that couldn't possibly be the reason that he can't stay in Moscow through the winter, which would have been the smart decision, according to Tolstoy. But that did happen, and now they're hungry, so they're leaving. Right? That's literally what's going on. Gotcha. They got starved out because the general sent to pursue Kutuzov couldn't find him, even though he had 60,000 men with him. The traditional historical analysis, contra Tolstoy of this moment, is that Napoleon has gotten himself evolved in a land roar in Asia, right? Yeah, He's drawn exactly. himself Don't out too far, just like in, um, in Risk. The Bride. <laughs> in The Princess Bride, he has gotten too far away from his center, and the supply chain issue is actually significant. That's traditional historical analysis. And Tolstoy says to the historians who say he should have stayed in, he should have, Tolstoy says he should have stayed in Moscow because there was enough food there to feed his army if he could keep them from looting. But Frenchmen always loot because they're real jerks. So, but we can't say that about them. I did actually, so I listened to Napoleon's biography by Andrew Roberts instead of reading it. (laughs) But uh, I don't know why I felt the need to say that. Yeah, we don't judge you for that. <laughs> it just is what came out. But um, we bless audiobooks. We bless them. No, we it was them. great. Yeah, I wouldn't have gotten through it. I'm sure if I hadn't listened to it. But I read Andrew Roberts' biography of Napoleon, which is where I was really trying to go. And the uh, he says that when Napoleon left uh, Moscow, that it is actually a really confusing decision for him to just up. Like here he has achieved this goal that he's been striving toward and like, and it's a major accomplishment. And then for a reason that really history can't figure out, he ups and leaves. He abandons this major um, takeover that he, this possession that he has. And we don't really know why he just, I mean, there's some, he makes some guesses he thought maybe he could get some more supplies in these other places or he would be better uh, defended in some other places. But like, really, it's a big question mark in history, according to Andrew Roberts, hmm. why Napoleon leaves Moscow. And so Tolstoy does kind of have a point. Yeah. Well, and if Tolstoy, for all of his sniping at historians, is doing the work of one here. And, and his assertion, more or less, is that part of what draws Napoleon out is that he wants to conquer all of Russia. Moscow is not sufficient. He has a plan drawn up for how to conquer the rest of it. And that in some senses, it's greed and lust for power that draws him out of Moscow. Right? Maybe. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, Are you referencing... I'm not saying that's true. I'm saying that's, that seems to be what Tolstoy implies. Because of the, the reference to the, um, the huge baggage trains that they're taking with them full of loot and plunder. 
that too, that sort of puts the nail in it. But initially, though, in, as part of the wise moves and plans and genius that Napoleon has, he takes care to mention that he has a, a beautiful military strategy laid out for conquering the rest of the country. So he does, he's not leaving because he's giving up. He's leaving because he has plans to go do more dirt to the Russian people. Anyway, I don't know what to make of all of that. Maybe this is what keeps people coming back to this book. Maybe maybe people read this and they go, Tolstoy, you self-contradictory weirdo. Let How can you possibly be saying both of these things? I don't know. Well, and it's also like Tolstoy has latched on to a really significant moment in world history. I don't know. I do think, like, to step back for a second, I think it's really cool that this story gets to be told from the Russian perspective. The Russians with their, like, vast wealth of literary riches and tradition tell the story of the moment that this world conqueror failed. And we could be living in a completely different world. Like, if if this hadn't happened, uh, you and I could be speaking French, you know? The, yeah. the world changed at this moment. True. That's cool. I hadn't thought of that. Part of the glory of reading history right there. We're not speaking French, though, and it's really hard to. <laughs> and also, French is really hard. French is really hard. <laughs> As our terrible pronunciation leads you to believe. <laughs> Frenchmen and their freaking idioms. There's this guy on YouTube, and he's I think he's trilingual. He speaks English and French and Spanish. And he does this whole series of comedy videos where, where he is he plays the role of universal language. Who, who approaches French and English and Spanish as though they are people and says, okay, guys, today your assignment is to come up with a word for this. And then he just parodies the heck out of the weirdness of each of these languages. <laughs> it's funny. I, I recommend it. <laughs> Do you know his name? I can't remember. I'll send, <laughs> I'll send you some. Okay. I mean, it's. I wish I could think of an example because in all these languages, there are idiomatic expressions that don't make any darn sense when you actually translate them. And so he uses Google Translate and he says, here's the literal meaning of this word. Here's what the French think it means. And we're supposed to just know. <laughs> we're supposed to just know that. I know. Being a French student <laughs> in college felt like that. What? What are you I talking about? I just cannot get the R down. Like me and Duolingo are off in a corner and Duolingo <laughs> is like, say au revoir. And I'm like, au revoir. And it's like, no. <laughs> say au revoir. <laughs> Oh, it's that so funny. Wrong. You got to have a lot of phlegm <laughs> to speak French. <laughs> Try the back of your throat. owl such a tyrant. The Duolingo owl. What a tyrant. Well, thank you both for your brilliance as usual. And we'll stick to it. And we're going we're gonna to make it through this thing. It's going to be awesome. And then we will be able to say, we read War and Peace. And I think it's going to be a joy and a pleasure. Like, I do think I am looking forward to what's coming. I think it's going to be good. Of so do course, I. Of course it will. I just always feel more positive after we've hung out with some of the brilliant characters that Tolstoy literally imagined from nothing. Okay, so his strengths. I wish he was playing to his strengths. Play to your often. strengths, Leo. Play to your strengths. We're going to get more Pierre. It's going to be great. Well, off into the Pierre chapters with all of you. Thank you so much for joining us as usual, and we'll see you next time around. Bon appetit. Bon appetit. Bon appetit. Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. 
Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading.